worthy to be praised. Celebrate the presence of the Lord. He is worthy to be praised. Rejoice then the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Celebrate. couple of things. We are going to have a short council meeting after the service today. I emphasize short. I know we just had one a couple weeks ago, but I want to make sure we do uh, updated financial information, make sure it all makes sense, and we're good to go with our calendar so that we can be set up for a business meeting next Sunday. So the goal is to have a business meeting next Sunday and kind of get ourselves back on regular church calendar set up for the rest of the year and try to make sense of some things. Sound good? <laughs> you say that you love business meetings. They're your favorite. <laughs> um, handful of things. Uh, I'll get updates in a second. Uh, new prayer concerns for the morning. If you did not receive it last night, um, Emily, Elizabeth Krause's granddaughter, went to the ER. They ended up taking her appendix last night. So called Elizabeth this morning. Uh, Elizabeth's a little tired. The whole family's a little tired. Emily's a little tired, but she's doing well. They caught it in time. They uh, they said it was on the verge of bursting, but it had not burst yet, so they just removed the appendix. She should be good to go. Lesson for your children and grandchildren. Emily said she'd been having stomach pain for two days. <laughs> if it hurts, tell someone. Tell someone, please. Get it looked at. So Emily is doing well, hopefully uh, coming home the next day or so and good to go. Uh, I didn't put it out there this morning because I was driving and it wasn't time. Mike Houston is at the hospital this morning. He fell last night in the bathroom and hit and cut his head on the floor. So since he is on blood thinners still because, um, hang on. In order to get set up for his surgery Tuesday, he's off of his oral blood thinners. He's been back on the uh, the injections. So they, they just thin you right out like that. So safe and sorry, make sure he's not bruised or bleeding or anything like that. He is gone to get that looked at. I have not heard any other updates. <laughs> if, the, if there is something that can go wrong, it will happen to Mike. So hopefully this doesn't derail him being able to have surgery Tuesday because they're supposed to remove the, uh, the kidney stone on Tuesday that he is not capable of passing. So hopefully that's still on track and all of that goes well. So be praying for Mike as you go. 
he should. He should get his own wing at this point, you know, his own private room that just block it off when he's not there. <laughs> we, if we chip in and donate enough money, they'll probably give him one. The Houston room. No one will want it because everything goes wrong in it. Um, a couple of updates. Uh, Jeff survived surgery. I know that because he's here. <laughs> so, you, what, about another week or so, and then they'd send you to uh, Helga at the Gulag to try to make you start moving it? <laughs> so that's about right. Yeah, physical therapy is the next step to try to get the motion back into it. Shoulders are fun, aren't they, Matt? <laughs> yeah, Becca's got a nice long history with that as well. So it's good to see you doing well. But remember Jeff, because he's going to still have some time ahead doing the physical therapy, which is always such such a, uh, a joy. Um, I keep forgetting to mention on a regular basis uh, Gail Hillier. You may have noticed she hadn't been here in ages. She had surgery months ago because of everything that's going on and the nature of her surgery. She was basically just put on house arrest. So she hasn't left the house in two months <laughs> at all. Matt's done all the shopping, all the going and about and, and doing. So she is coming up on the end of her, her exile, as she puts it. She's feeling really well, seems to be doing well. She had some, um, some I don't know, how. what's the best description? There were some potential tumors that were supposed to be removed, and then when they actually go, went in to remove them, where they were supposed to be, they weren't there, and they just made sure and took everything anyway. <laughs> So, in a short story, she's doing well, healing better, should be back with us shortly. Um, something I'm forgetting. Anything going once, going twice? Do I actually have everything on the list for once? Go team. All right. Who did God send to prepare the way for Jesus? John the Baptist. Now, here's the fun, important question that I always ask you. Why did he do that? <laughs> See, because you're like, I, be, because he did. All right? That's why. He just did. <laughs> now, see, Old Testament promises, and this is part of the reason why you have so much stuff you have in Scripture. Again, I always like this analogy, so I'm going to keep using it until someone gives me a better one. If a guy just walked in the back door, climbed in here, and said, hey, I'm God, follow me. Like, you, you pull your purse, ladies, a little bit closer, right? You get on the opposite side as your husband from wherever he is, and you start looking like somebody called the people with the jackets that fasten in the back. Like, same thing in the first century. You don't just get to show up and go, hi, I'm God, follow me. No, you got to prove it. Part of the way you prove it is what you do from that point forward, which Jesus does. But the other way you prove it in is everything else that has happened up until then. There is a forerunner of the king, as promised by Isaiah and by Malachi. There is one who will make the path straight. Bring the hills down, lift the valleys up, straighten out the roads. If they are rough, make them smooth. The, the, the declarations of the work before the coming king. That is what John the Baptist is to fulfill. That's why when the religious leaders come out and ask him, well, who are you? What does he quote? I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness. What is he reminding them of? He's reminding them of Isaiah, promising the forerunner of the Messiah, so that the one that John the Baptist pointed to, that's him. That's the guy. That's who you should be following. It's not just that Jesus fulfills everything going forward in his ministry. His arrival, his heralding, and his promise, he is fulfilling everything that was promised beforehand as well. You don't just get the work of Jesus and go, look at all the fulfilled prophecy. You get everything beforehand, all according to God's plan. We're throwing stuff around. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we can't have nice things, right? <laughs> so, with all of that said, history time. Everyone's why I like to make you guys go back and dig into some history. What country did the king of Assyria sh lay siege to for three years? 
This is in your Old Testament. I even told you the exact book. So it's in 1 Kings. Read the book of 1 Kings. It will do you good. Look for that and then ask yourself this important question. Why? Why does this one thing happen, but maybe something else does not happen? And see where the success and where the, where the failure is. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, guess what we'll do next Sunday? We'll explain all of that, so it's half the fun. But start branching out and digging in. It's good for you to try to, you know, unearth a little Bible history and knowledge on your own. It, it, it's beneficial. It gets those brain synapses firing. <laughs> all right, so that's your work for this week. Nope. Anything else I'm forgetting, going once, going twice, then I will stop talking. It's time to stand and sing. If you're in a battle for the Lord and bride, keep on the firing line. If you win, my brothers, surely you must fight. Keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must face. If we die of fighting, it is no disgrace. Coward in the service, he will find no place. Oh, keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run, nor even lag behind. When we get to heaven, brother, oh, keep on the firing line. God will only use a soldier he can trust. Keep on the firing line. If you wear a crown, then bear the cross you must. Keep on the firing line. Life is but to labor for the master dear. Help to banish evil and to spread good cheer. Great, you'll be rewarded for your service years. Oh, keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run, nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. When we get to heaven, brother, we'll be glad. Keep on the firing line. How we praise the Savior for the call we had. Keep on the firing line. When we see the souls that we have helped you win, leading them to Jesus from the paths of sin. With the shadow welcome, we will all march in. So keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run or even lag behind. You would win for God and the right. Just keep on the firing line. 
If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. Gather around children, got a story to tell you about a man who lived long ago. Now he was a leopard and he needed a healing, but he didn't know where to go. So the prophet told Naaman to go chilly Jordan, their old Naaman would find. After seven times in the muddy water, God delivered right on time. God was in time for the children of Israel to cross the mighty Red Sea. He was on time when the walls of Jericho fell at Joshua's feet. Every time I feel discouraged, don't have to worry where it could be. God's on time, on time, every time for me. Stands little David with a sling in his hand, right before the giant so tall. He was unlikely to all of those men that surely Goliath would fall. When the three Hebrew boys wouldn't bow down and bell, kings had crossed the line. They were flown into flame, but the fourth man came and God delivered on time. It was in time for the children of Israel to cross the mighty Red Sea. He was on time when the walls of Jericho fell at Joshua's feet. Every time I feel discouraged, don't have to worry where you'll be. God been in time, on time, every time for me, for me, for me. God was in time for the children of Israel to cross the mighty Red Sea. He was on time when the walls of Jericho fell at Joshua's feet. Every time I feel discouraged, don't have to worry where you'll be. God been in time, on time, every time. In time, on time, right on time. In time, on time, every time for me, for me, for me. walking off somewhere without water. I, it's like forgetting to put on my pants this morning. It's terrible. Better check. 
<laughs> I think you would have screamed by now if I'd forgotten that. So when someone would have been polite and been like, <laughs> there's a problem, problem. All right. Because my brain has gone in 17 different directions, I kept walking around right before Sunday school saying, there's something else I'm supposed to be doing, and I can't think of what it is. And then Matt goes, I forgot about communion. I went, that's what it was. I got to go get a table and a tablecloth. And There you go. Such fun. So before something else idiotic comes flying out of my head, let's do something productive that's actually planned. Sound like a good idea? Yes, there it is. Exodus chapter 2. We will finish this chapter today. As a reminder, though, I warned you of this last week. Where we left off last week is where we will pick up this week. So there's kind of a transition verse there at verse 15. When last we left our intrepid deliverer Moses, he had tried to bring justice and peace to his people by killing an Egyptian and hiding him in the sand. That's never a way to start a revolution, especially one that is supposed to be based upon God and his righteousness. So because of that and because of his failure, he is now running for his life. And when last seen, he was sitting down in Midian at a well. Now, you may ask yourself, what's a Midian? We have answers. Genesis chapter 25. Now Abraham took another wife. This is after the death of Sarah. So this is not like the Hagar situation. This is, this is actually okay. Whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Letushim and Lumim. Again, if you're looking for names for grandchildren or children, you won't do better than these. There will be no Lumims in kindergarten, I promise you. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanak and Abida and Eldaah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Now we know from history where the Midianites settled. This is the northwest corner of modern-day Saudi Arabia, which for once in Bible history is not modern-day Turkey. Because every time I'm dealing with Bible history, I feel like I'm constantly saying modern-day Turkey. It is not we are in modern-day Saudi Arabia, northwestern corner. So if, you've, um, if you have the book of maps in your Bible, where the Red Sea comes up like this, and then there's two little tributaries that kind of pop out, we're just to the east of that uh, right-hand tributary. Now, where did he sit down? At a well. Your Bible is doing something here. It is pointing things out to you. When you read that Moses sat down by a well, you should kind of have some flashbulbs going off from your other biblical history. When the servant of Abraham went to get a bride for Isaac, where did he find Rebekah? At a well. When Jacob met Rachel, where did he meet her? At a well. And then he showed off, right? Big feet of strength to push the big heavy stone away to show her how powerful he was, you know, like a 14-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. When Joseph was to be gotten rid of, where did his brothers throw him? In a well. This is a little bit of foreshadowing and also a little bit of conditioning by God in your Bible. The idea behind this is when you see someone doing something at a well, your brain should kind of twitch a little because I've seen this before. Fast forward in your Bible and you actually see. See, some of you are like, wait a minute, I know where this one's going. John chapter 4. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? This is the Samaritan woman talking to Jesus when they are sitting by 
a well, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. See, you're not greater than Jacob, who would become Israel, the patriarch of the nation, are you? And the answer is, yes, yes, I am. And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Remember what your Bible is doing. We've got two stories. Hang on, two stories. I can't do it like this because that would be four, right? So we've got two stories. I've got to get my hands right. Two stories going on in Exodus. We have the immediate story. There is a Pharaoh. There is an Israelite. There is a Goshen. There is an Egypt. There is a Moses. They are doing these things. He was in the river. They pulled him out of the little ark. All of these things happened. But God is in the midst of these things to demonstrate what? His overarching story of redemption. His overarching deliverance that will connect the Garden of Genesis to the Garden of Revelation. What was lost being restored and how it will be set right. Think of it like a bow. So like, you know, like a bow for a bow and arrow, string and curved part. Lay it on its side. You have the actual story, the people doing something, going along, linear thought. And then you have what above it? You have God at work, inter intervening, intermingling, working in the midst of these things to bring about the ultimate end goal. They're going to get there, but they're only going to get there on the flat timeline because God is working on the other timeline. Make sense? All right. With all of that said, we now can actually dive into what is going on with Moses here. So, Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 through 25. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water, I'm sorry, fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave him Zipporah to Mo his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Believe it or not, all that background stuff we just covered is very, very important. So let's rewind to the beginning, and I will go ahead and warn you, this is going to be quick at the front, and then we're going to get bogged down a little bit, and then we're going to speed up at the end. That, that's on purpose. I didn't get lost. We didn't, you know, miss the highway somewhere. We're, we're there intentionally. Just kind of the way the narrative works. Yeah, we will. I thought we had to get ahead of the Methodists. Is it the Lutherans today? We got to beat the Lutherans to lunch? All right. <clears throat> that's right. In North Carolina, it's always the Methodists because they have that short service. So here it's harder. All right. Verse 16. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now, we have some details here. Some things should jump out at you right off the bat. Priest, all right, take that one, put it in your back pocket. We're going to come back to it. Seven daughters? Hang on, let me, let me make sure I'm, yeah, hi, how you doing? Good morning, nice to see you. No. In all seriousness, 
This would be difficult for a nomadic desert people. I mean, you, you've seen videos of the Middle East, right? Luscious garden oasis all over, everywhere. You, you know. <laughs> there's nice places, and then in between those nice places, there's what? There's sand. Not some of it. A lot of it. So to have seven daughters doing this work would mean there aren't any sons. For a nomadic people, who are we marrying these girls to? How are we providing for the family? Is Ruel working? So odds are he's either too old or too infirm to work that his daughters are doing this job. This is difficult. The shepherds came, here's your proof, and drove them away. So the ladies are there waiting to assemble to get the, the flocks going on. The shepherds from other families and tribes come along and do what with them? Get out of here. You're not going first. I don't care if you were here first. You're smaller than me. And as my father tried to teach me when I was a child, might is right. No, no, it's not. That's not how this works. But Moses, which if you've ever seen the Cecil B. DeMille, I should say it properly. Moses. If you've never seen that movie, watch it. At least four times in that film, a woman refers to him as Moses. So go home and rent it. Go to Family Video. I'm sure they got it. It'll cost you a buck. It's worth it. So Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flock. All right, a couple of things. Remember what we've got going on. Moses is living a life, but who's also working in the background and above, and above ground? Does this remind you of anything? Genesis 29, I mentioned it earlier. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. You know, walking around all big and bad, showing off. What did Moses just do? Now, there's also more to this. Why is Moses on the run? What does the speech of Stephen tell us about his work? Why does he kill the Egyptian? Because he's hoping to bring righteousness and justice and redemption to his people. But he fails. Has Moses lost that sense of right? Has he lost that sense of justice? No. He's sitting over there. He sees the ladies assembling with their herds. He sees the other shepherds drive them off. He just sits there and goes, can you believe these people? No, he actually does something. Now, this is also a good example. Christian, when we see injustice in the world, what do we do? We do something. Not anything, but we do what is right. This is demonstrating a couple things. It is showing Moses' heart, but it is also connecting him to the work of Jacob. Why is that important? What was Jacob? Jacob is one of the patriarchs, the leaders of the family, the mouthpiece of God for the people as they move forward. What will Moses be? The same thing. How do I know that? Because God is showing you by allusions back what is to come moving forward. Now, here's where it gets good. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? Because you know what he's thinking. They do this every day. Every day, the other shepherds drive them off, make them go to the back of the line. It takes all day to water the flocks, and they come home late. Wait a minute. Did everybody else die or something? What, what happened? You're here early, which means you didn't get bumped to the back of the line. So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Now, your dad. What do you want to see next? <clears throat> Let's be honest. They're telling you the story. Seven women are telling you the story. First of all, what do you think that sounds like? Is this calm and orderly and, you know, one steps forward and gives one word and then she steps back and then the other one steps forward? It's like, 
One. I don't care which one. One. Okay, an Egyptian man delivered you from the shepherds, and then he watered the flocks. All right? What's your next question? I got seven daughters here. I got this brave, strapping man who's beating off other shepherds and casting them away and now rescuing my own daughters. Hmm, we might have something here, huh? So he said to his daughters, where is he then? Like, this should be a dumb question. They were so excited and so happy that what did they do? They went home. Moses is kind of like, a thank you? Something? Why is it you have left the man behind? Like, here we go. Eligible, strong, righteous man, and you just leave him sitting at the well. Invite him to have something to eat. Now, this is how your Bible is so concerned with all of these little details. We mentioned last week how we had time. Well, we mentioned a couple weeks ago. We have time jumps in this book. And we saw last week, we fast-forwarded with Moses from the time that Pharaoh's daughter took him out of the river to the time that he was weaned and returned to her. That's two to three years, depending on the family and the situation, rate of growth and all of that good stuff. And then we fast forward. Moses is brought into the household at three, and he's about 40, and he's going out. We, we lost 30-some-odd years, and the Bible just doesn't care because it's not important. We're about to zoom forward another two to three years right here. If I could if I can get my papers to work. So verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. All right, there's your fast forward. Well, the fast forward is technically in the next verse, but it's part of it. Now, this is one of those times you need to ask a question. Why? Why is this here? Other than the fact that we just got to get these girls married to somebody and somebody is now here. Why is this good and right? I picked on you ladies a second ago, seven telling the story. Now I'm going to give you a really whole pile of credit. What other than an act of God settles and changes a man's heart and mind? <laughs> a woman. I mean, I'm, I'm, in all seriousness, I'm not joking here. Guys, if you could not date a cute girl unless you had a job and a car and a house, what would you start working on the minute you were able? A job, a car, and a house. Why? Because there's a cute girl over there. I want to go on a date with her because we're going to stop right there. Men's brains are wired one way. Women's brains are wired a different way. That's intentionally done by God so that you are supposed to work together for the benefit of one another. This is why your Bible praises men's work in family and women's work in family. Proverbs 19. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 18. He who finds a good thing and obtain I'm sorry, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The goal of every individual is supposed to be what in this world? Bring glory to the Lord. Godliness. A godly husband should act in a certain way towards his wife, and conversely, a godly wife should act in a certain way towards her husband. They should be a blessing and an honor to one another. Now, here's where it gets really fun, even if the other one's scum. As a Christian, you should be a blessing and an honor to your spouse, even if they are not worthy and deserving of it. Why? What's our call? Godliness. If you're scum and I'm scum, am I being godly? No. Whose fault is that? That's, is that your fault? No, that's... That's a me problem. No. Now, if you're being scum and I'm being godly, am I honoring God and serving and worshiping him rightly? 
yes, I can't make you do something different, but I can control how I act. Now, why do I make a big deal out of this? When this daughters of Ruel, or Jethro, depending on which section of the Old Testament you read, two names there, when the daughters returned to their father, how did they describe Moses? No. It wasn't, we were there watering the flocks in this, this strapping, tall Moses of a man delivered us from the shepherds. No. Bingo. An Egyptian man delivered us from the shepherds. An Egyptian man. Ooh. Is Moses an Egyptian man? No. Should Moses be being described as an Egyptian man? Here's some warnings from your New Testament. James 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John 15, Jesus speaking, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. We told you, before we get Israel out of Egypt, what are we going to do? We're going to start getting Egypt out of Israel. And that starts with Moses. We've gotten Moses out of Egypt. Now what are we going to do? We've got to get some Egypt out of Moses. How do you do this? You settle him. How do you settle him? With a priest, with a wife, and with a family honoring and serving God in a simple life. We've taken him from the palace and brought him out to the middle of nowhere to be a shepherd. That'll humble you up real fast. We've gone from honor, glory, power to, hey, what are we eating tomorrow? Because I'm kind of looking around and it's, it's a little skinny. You know, what happens if the well dries up? What happens if the shepherds decide they outnumber us? What happens if pestilence comes flying across the desert what what happens if uh you know a disease goes through the flocks suddenly i'm very dependent on who god now you see this in moses with our fast forward verse 22 then she gave birth to a son and he named him gershom for he said i have been a sojourner in a foreign land catch this where, when, where was Moses a sojourner in a foreign land? Is it in Midian or was it in Egypt? It was Egypt. He was a sojourner in a foreign land. He is settled now. Now, hold on. Was Moses a sojourner in Egypt? Yes and no. He was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He's in the royal family. He's got some power. He's got some authority. Might have been a military commander. Might have been an administrator. Might have done all sorts of things. He could come and go freely. He's out there walking around looking at people. He's not working himself to death, is he? No. This was good. How did it work out? How did that adoption go? That one just ended in fairy tales and rainbows, right? No. From a worldly perspective, it should have, though, shouldn't it? I mean, if you're going to pick an adopted family, what do you want? You want a wealthy, influential powerful family. That's the good one, right? That's, that's the one they're going to raise this kid right. He's going to be safe. He's going to be secure. He's not going to have any wants, any needs. Nothing wrong at all. 
from the world's perspective, this is the end-all, be-all. Fast forward, uh, rewind to this world. From the world's perspective, what is Egypt? The end-all, be-all, Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying what? Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at him. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, Again, this is part of your overarching big story. This is what goes wrong here, is you have the kings of the earth continually taking their stand to glorify who? This is the vision of Daniel, right? The stone made without hands to crush the statue, which represents all of those kingdoms. This is the place that it goes wrong. Who will establish the kingdom? God will. This is why Moses couldn't redeem the people. This is why Moses couldn't rescue them by killing an Egyptian and starting some uprising. Because God must redeem and establish his people, not men. Now, this is also why where Moses is settled is so important. Made a big joke about the seven daughters. What part did I tell you we'd come back to? He's a priest. Ruel, Jethro, he's a priest. Exodus 18 gives you more details if you fast forward. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, that is Ruel, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders to Israel, I'm sorry, all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. When they leave, before God comes down upon the mountain, before the whole shaking and the commandments and the thou shalt nots and all of that, they have a meal and a sacrifice offered by a priest who is Moses' father-in-law. Where does Jethro's family come from? This is why that stuff at the beginning was so important. He comes from Abraham, son of Keturah. So down the line, if you go back far enough, Moses and Jethro come from the same place. Now, did Abraham raise those sons apart from the knowledge of God? I doubt it. I highly doubt it. That's how you get a Midianite who is a priest of God offering sacrifice. It's also a reminder going backwards of something that is a foretelling of something that will come later on. I say it that way because of Psalm 110, because your question should be, that's not how priests come about. Like Moses is line. He's from the tribe of Levi. Aaron, his brother, is going to be the priest. Those are the ones that are ordained. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is messianic in nature. It's talking about the coming king, the king who is to rule. But it reminds you that he is a priest because of whose work? 
God's work in the past. Genesis 13 is where you see Melchizedek. Uh, Lot is taken captive in the uh, battle of the five kings versus the four kings. Lot is a prisoner of war. Abraham gathers up his people, all 300 of them, goes after the five kings, defeats them, brings Lot home. And as he returns, the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, whose name is Melchizedek, comes out, and, Ab- and he offers sacrifice to God, and Abraham pays him a tithe. There's a lot going on right there. But suffice to say that the king in Jerusalem is a priest of God. That is showing you something. Because who is the king of Zion when we talk about Psalm 110? It's not David. It's Christ. What does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifice. What does Christ do? Christ offers sacrifice for his people. The people that he offers sacrifice for is the people that the Father will then give to him that he rules over in the kingdom that honors and serves God. This is where you get Trinity working together, Father, Son, Spirit, all working together in the praise of God. Why? Because they are all the persons of God. No, I'm not trying to explain that any further than that. I'd like my head to not explode today, and I think we're about that close this morning. (laughs) Therefore, Settling him with Ruel, or Jethro, we'll, we'll just interchange them. Just If I say one too many times, just wave at me and I'll say the other name. Settling him there is so important because it's not just that he has a wife. It's not just that he has a family. It's not just that he has a job where he is dependent. He is settled with a priest of God. He is now worshiping, serving, sacrificing. His calendar, his life will look different than it did in Egypt. What are we doing? We're getting that Egypt. We're getting the worldliness out of the man who would be deliverer. Now, different question. Why has Ruel adopted Moses? Because he hasn't just married off a daughter. I mean, you go back. Moses was willing to dwell with the man. He gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. See, this is a world where you don't just get married and, you know, move 20 miles away somewhere. Odds are we're getting married, and once we have kids, we'll just we'll, we'll add an extension on somewhere. We're safer this way. Family is family, and we're here. So Moses doesn't just get the daughter. He's now got some sisters and a father and the whole nine yards. We've now got an extension to the family. This is gratitude. This is rescue. This is love, both for daughter and for family and for Moses, and this is an extension of family. What was Egypt's adoption based on? Is based on power. Why could Pharaoh's daughter adopt Moses? Because she's Pharaoh's daughter. Which, what was supposed to happen to Moses when they found him floating in the river? You take the ark and you do what? You just push it under. If anyone else in Egypt had found that ark, what would they have done? If anybody else who's not Pharaoh's daughter had found that child, brought it into Pharaoh's court and said, I'd like to adopt this baby I found in the river. Guards would have done what? New record. She gets to do it because she's what? She's Pharaoh's daughter. She has power. She has authority. She has strength to redeem this baby from this calamity. Now, we mentioned last week, this is a picture of God. Our inability in sin. God's power and majesty and might to redeem a people because he is able But is this a complete picture of God? No, not even remotely. This is why you have a second adoption for Moses. 
Do you remember the emotion of Pharaoh's daughter? When she opened up the ark and she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children, she had blank on him. Pity. Pity. Fun, huh? Isn't that what every child wants to hear? I just saw you and, and you were just so pitiful. I felt so bad for you. I figured I couldn't kill you. <laughs> didn't, didn't you just long for your parents to tell you that when you grew up? Wasn't, wasn't that just like, oh, thank you. No, God has compassion. God is the one who is moving. And we can demonstrate that here. We're now getting a full, complete picture of Christ and his work. Revelation 21. Go back to the end of the book. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God, is among men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. See, that's why at the end of the book in Revelation, you get a full picture of God. You get the conquering king with the sword and the sash and the armies defeating the evil, destroying it completely. But you also get what? The compassionate, loving father who wipes the tears and helps his people and protects them. And loves them. What does that look like? It looks like a Midian priest and shepherd adopting an Egyptian and bringing him into his home, marrying his daughter off, and providing for his family and his way of life. With that picture in mind, we can now move back from Moses, which is here, and we can go straight up and see what God is doing. Verse 23. It came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Now, we covered this a little bit last week. Why is this the case? Because God is a God who sees. He saw the garden. He saw the sin. He saw the tower in Genesis 11. He saw Abram in Haran in Genesis 12. He saw Joseph in the well. I'm sorry, yes, Joseph in the well. He saw Jacob traveling in the wilderness. He saw Moses in the river. He saw Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness. He saw Lot in Sodom. He saw all of this and everything else in between, and he did not miss it. This is why I love to read this as a reminder for, uh, for funerals, especially at gravesides, because the last thing I want to try to leave a family with is typically the remembrance of what God sees and where he is. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Then the psalmist goes on to say what? Where can I flee from your presence? If I reach to the heavens, where are you? You're there. If I go down to the grave, 
you are there. If I'm in the remotest parts of the sea, you are there. What's the punchline of all of this, uh, all of this knowledge and seeing from God, knowing where he is? The end of the psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Because you see me, what do I want you to do? See me. And you know there's a difference, right? I mean, you, you've, you've done this with family. Like you're, you're talking to your spouse and you're looking at them. And all of a sudden you have to blink again because you realize that you just lost five minutes and you have no idea what just happened. Because you were looking at them, but you weren't looking at them. God doesn't just see the world as if, eh, that's still turning down there. They're, they're still doing stuff. I wonder what they're doing. Oh, wait a minute. What just happened? Oh, it's 1842 now? Okay, cool. Yeah, they're still doing stuff. Yeah, still spinning along. Huh? What? What is it? It's 1920. Oh, okay, cool. I mean, no, that, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. It's not just a God who sees. It's a God who sees. He knows. He is aware. He is present, and he is able. Hence verse 24. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he is a God who sees, he is a God who knows. And because he is a God who knows, he is a God who does not forget. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, all the places where God reiterates and makes his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 26, where he reiterates the same covenant with Isaac. Genesis 28 and Genesis 35, where he takes that covenant from Abraham and Isaac and he applies it to Jacob. He has not forgotten these promises. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. Now, again, just like with your children, you just say things over and over again because you love the sound of your own voice. It's the only reason you do it. You just keep saying it because you just love to hear the words come out of your mouth. No, you say it because you want what? Them to know it. Why does God have to keep reminding us of his covenant? Why does he keep reiterating it and making it? Don't you think if God made you a promise, you'd remember? Like, if God either voiced from on high or literally came down and stood among you and gave you a promise, do you think there would come a day in your life you would forget that? You'd think that, but you would. You know how I know you would? Because God had to say it again. <laughs> and if God had to say it again, how are the people living? Uh-huh. This is why Abraham, who has God come down and speak to him, just nails everything in life from that point forward. He never gets it wrong, like when he goes down to Egypt and says lies about who his wife is, or when he's you know deciding he needs a son and figures that since Sarah can't do it, maybe Hagar can. I mean, none of these places are ever messed up because he saw God and he knows the promise is coming. Like maybe if I saw a bunch of plagues and I saw water come out of a rock and I saw manna come from heaven and I saw the Red Sea part before me, maybe then I would get it, and I wouldn't grumble against God, and I would live a life of righteousness. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, yeah, you would think that, but the people were like, that was Tuesday. It's Wednesday, baby. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> and if you don't know who Janet Jackson is, you are a much better human being than I am. Now, two things real quick. One, you're seeing God's attributes on display, the description of him. That's good, but it's also dangerous because we are using human language to explain an eternal God. You know how well that works? <laughs> it doesn't. What we have here is what we call an anthropomorphism. 
which is, I don't even think you can score that in Scrabble. You can't get enough letters together on the board. And anthropomorphism is the ascribing or assigning of human characteristics to a non-human entity. If you would like a good example of that, Looney Tunes are anthropomorphic. Rabbits don't talk. But they do in the cartoon. That is an anthropomorphic rabbit. He walks like a dog, uh, walks like a person. He eats like a person. He talks like a person. He acts like a person. But he's not a person. God is not one of us in the sense that he is a person like we are. Therefore, when we describe him as seeing and knowing, I have to go through all of these lengths to describe what his seeing and knowing and remembering is like because they do not describe him rightly. We remember things because we first did what? We first forgot them. <laughs> in order to remember something, I have to first forget about it. When we talk about God remembering, it is not because God forgot. All of a sudden, we turn the page and it's like, ooh, that's right. He's right there. i got to remember this is going on here. It is because God is now working out the promise that he has given. An example of this is rewound in Genesis chapter 8. Uh, remember in 6, what does God tell Noah to do? Build an ark. The death of all flesh is before me. Build the boat. Chapter 7, the flood comes. Calamity, destruction, death on the grand scale. Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him on the ark. Was that because between 7's destruction and 8's redemption that God forgot he put Noah and the animals on a boat? No. We're now choosing from God to work through that. So God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. The rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. God is outside of time. That's why we have our two timelines going. We've got our human timeline, and we've got our, our God working line. He does not forget. He does not remember. He acts in the appropriate time. Now, the lesson here is important. Does God change? No, he does not. Now, since he doesn't change, and he didn't forget about them, and he didn't forget about his promises to them, will he forget about me and his promises to me? No. Welcome to why we do communion. What's the reminder here? This is what God has done. Connected with what he has done, there are promises that are yet to be fulfilled. I can see in human history past that God has been faithful to all of them, therefore I know what? He will be faithful to all that he has made. That is why I can have an expectant, hopeful, longing heart in this world, because I know there is coming a day when Christ will return. Why? Because he said so. I know there is coming a day when this sin that so easily entangles me will be put to the side. Why? Because that's what he has said. I know there is coming a day when all of this death and destruction and evil and vileness will be cast aside and it will be a good and righteous kingdom where the God and Father will dwell and I will be safe and I will be secure. Why do I know that? Because that's what he has promised. And that's what you get to at the end of this chapter, verse 25. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Not like, oh, oh, I forgot I put him in Egypt. No. Now it's time for what? Now it's time to get this ball rolling. Now it's time to accomplish something. Which means for God's people who are suffering in this hardship, what's coming? Freedom, redemption, deliverance, salvation is coming. But the lesson of Scripture up until this point and moving forward is, has redemption ever looked like what you thought it was going to look like? Like at any point, like, hey, there's a flood coming. All right, what do you want me to do? Build a boat. Yeah, build a big boat out of wood. 
There's going to be volcanoes. Yep, big ones. There's going to be a lot of rain. Uh-huh, 40 days and 40 nights. There's going to be floods. Yep, all sorts of them. Currents. Yep. There's going to be mountains I could crash into. Uh-huh. You think maybe we should do this in 1930 when we got steel and motors and stuff? Nope. Nope. No, we shouldn't. We should not do that. We're doing it right now. Now is the time. Should that boat have made it seriously? <laughs> no. I mean, not even a little bit. I don't care how many rudders you put on that, If you how many, how many wind catches at the top, which I love what Answers in Genesis have done, which actually putting science on this. Because I, I don't care how much of that you do. Just put it on the ground, and here comes the water and the, and the smoke and the ash and the volcanoes and the floods and the currents and the whole bit. Uh-uh. Why does it make it? Because God remembered Noah. Redemption shouldn't look like that. But because God will get the glory, it does. When you're starving in the desert, and the people have been delivered, and we can't do another step because there is no more water. Not only is there no more water, there's not even a place for water. Why is there water coming out of that rock? <laughs> Should that happen? No. Would you be standing there going, hey guys, watch this. I got 20 on God coming, we're getting water out of that rock. What do you think? No, there's nobody standing around with that. Or when you're standing at the edge of the Red Sea and there's the sea before you and Pharaoh's army behind you. You think there's somebody in the corner? Two to one, God parts it. What do you think? You're going to just send a wind, it's going to blow off to one side, there's going to be dry ground under that puppy. Two to one, what do you think? See, you're laughing because it sounds ridiculous. There's a reason why it sounds ridiculous. Redemption has not and does not occur the way people expect that it should. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. All right. He is just, all right, endowed with salvation. I'm liking this so far. Humble. Ooh, that's, that's a good trait. And mounted on a donkey. You get a little whiplash right there in your brain? Like, conquering kings, how are they supposed to ride in? Yeah, chariots and horses are coming on the clouds. Something. We got donkeys. Colts. I mean, really? This, this is what we're going with? Yes. Yes, it is. Why? What does it prove? Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. We wrote a song on this one. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. If you have no ideas, we, they, uh, I don't remember who, this, who the writer is, but they put it to music. I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Yeah, praise you in the storm. Hey, there's some more theology. It's a good theology song. Yeah, listen to that one more often. It'll do you good. Now, what does that work from God in the 121st Psalm produce? What does it produce in his people? This is when you get things like Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why does that even make sense? Because there's a rejected prince living on the backside of nowhere, shepherding his sheep, who is going to be the deliverer of God's people. Who had that one on the bingo card? Go ahead. Yeah, that's not how we would do it. But that is how God does it. Why? Because he is the one who accomplishes it. And Moses is going to give you not some of the excuses. Moses is going to give you all of them. As we get through this book, Moses is going to give you every excuse so that when we're done, who's going to get credit? God will. This is the lesson we carry forward. I've warned you about this in the previous weeks. I'll warn you about it again. We don't look at this now and say, man, look what they did. (laughs) We shouldn't even look at this and go, oh, look what God did. You're getting warmer, though. We should be looking at this and saying, look at who God is. Look at the one who has more power than Egypt. Look at the one who has more love than rule. Look at the one who adopts this people unto himself. Look at the one who loves and cares and cherishes. Because when you understand who he is, what he does is easy. Because what he does is a product of what? Who he is. See, we should remember this. Because this is also good to carry forward with us day by day. The almighty God, creator, sustainer, ruler, just judge of how many things? All of them. Sitting on high, power we cannot comprehend, wisdom and knowledge, all of that. That same God is the loving Father who cares and has concern for his people, who builds them up, lifts them up, and carries them through even the darkest of days. Not because of pity, not because of obligation, but because of love. First Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Why should I do that? Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Even Peter saw this. It's not cast your anxiety on the the mighty hand of God because he has the power to bear it. Cast your anxiety on the mighty hand of God because he has the strength to overcome it. Is that true? Yes. But why should I go to God? Because he cares for me. When you get ants in your house, do you do you worry about smushing them? Sometimes. Like you, you have that little tinge for a minute where you're like, yeah, but at the end of the day, what are they? They're ants. They're ants. By comparison to God, guess what? We're ants. God doesn't smush them. He loves them. He cherishes them. And he lifts them up. And he gives them an inheritance with his son who died for them. And he sets them in his kingdom. And he cares for them. And he protects them. And he guides them. And he cherishes them. Because they are not ants. They are his children that he has sacrificed for, that he has worked for, 
that he has redeemed. This is the God who we serve. This is the God when the world has lost its mind is sitting there going, I still love you. This is the God who when we have nothing left is going, I've been here the entire time. This is our mistake. When, when do we say, we might as well pray. We can't do anything else. Let's rewind that a couple of steps. Wait a minute, we have a problem. We need to pray before we do anything else. Because he's good, and he's loving, and he's guiding, and he's preserving. We forget this. We get into our world. We spend 40 years in Egypt here, and all of a sudden, what do we start looking like? It's an Egyptian man who saved us. No, 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 no. We are not of the world. Christ has redeemed us from that world. He has plucked us out and set us aside for his kingdom. Now, he's left us here physically. Does that mean we have to wallow in it? No. No, it does not. And why should I not? Because God didn't do that to torture everyone else. He did that because he loves me. And he cares for me. And his demonst- the demonstration of that is in all of his work, all of his attributes. Who he is guides what he does. Guess what guides what you do? Who you are. And day by day, remembering that the Father loves you, and cares for you, and is at work for you, changes who you are and what you live for, because it changes who you are on the inside. This is how the Holy Spirit works. He brings to remembrance the truth of God, which means your starting point is what? About putting into your brain the truth of God. He brings it to your remembrance because you've been shoving it in there. And if you're not shoving it in there, he's going to start kicking you in the butt so you do. That's just how this works. It's good for you. It'll do you good. We have to see a full picture of God for us, and also for the rest of this world. They know they're guilty. We've talked about this before. Why does the world shake its fist so badly at the church? Because they know they're wrong. They know they have sin. And as long as we exist, what do we remind them of? That judgment is coming. What do they need to know? Yes, your sin is real. Yes, your sin will judge you. Yes, your sin will condemn you because God is the just judge. But... That just judge did what? He died for your sin if you would but trust in him and be saved. See, now the world changes. Not because we've done anything great, but because God has done something great. And we praise him by living and working for that kingdom. We praise him by being built up in his word and in prayer and in communion with one another so that when the time comes, we have words to say to testify to our great God. We praise him day in and day out by how we live and for whom we live. This is a lesson Moses is going to spend 40 years in the wilderness learning. Christian, please don't take that long. (laughs) For your sake... And for all of our sake, because we're all better when we don't waste four decades learning. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done, the work that you are doing, and the work that you have promised. Because we know it is certain. We know it will come to pass, and therefore we can rejoice. We can rest in your loving work, because you have saved us. Because of that, you will not forget us, and you will not cast us aside. But you will complete us. And you will usher us into your kingdom where we will see your greatness and your goodness on display day by day. We will rejoice in that eternity. Until then, Lord, strengthen us to get to that day 
that we would stand firm, refusing to be of the world, refusing to fall into their schemes, but Lord, standing in your righteousness, walking as Christ did, following after him and him alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This song, uh, when I was a kid in Arkansas, we sung this song a lot, almost every Sunday. And I figured that I would bring a little piece of my past to you guys. Put your hand in the hand of the man who steals the water. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. Take a look at yourself, and you can look at others differently. By putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. Every time I look into the holy book, I want to tremble. When I read about the part where the carpenter cleared the temple, writers and the sellers were no different than what I professed to be. And it causes me pain to know that I'm not the person I should be. Put your hand in the hand of the man who steals the water. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. Take a look at yourself, and you can look at others differently by putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. By putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. A uh, quick reminder, council, stick around real fast. We'll have a short meeting. We'll just meet right over there. Uh, business meeting next Sunday. Remember, uh, Emily and Mike in your prayers this week, please. Hopefully, like I said, Mike's still having surgery Tuesday. We'll get an update out as soon as we know something. Let's pray. Again, Lord, as we leave, remind us of your people that we would pray. Remind us of your kingdom that we would work. And remind us of your love that we would know. That we would be secure and grounded in you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.